uh, these compounds or anything like literally anything that's going to alter our consciousness, which is just about anything, breathing differently, sleeping differently, going and finding the sunlight. Any of these things become different seats in this amphitheater of awareness. Being able to alternate those seats is wonderful, but if you have what feels like a lack of control over your seat placement and a lack of context for how you arrived at that seat, that's when you get into some of these others, like, you know, worrisome kind of mental states of, you know, panic or, or things like this. Welcome to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. My name is Keith Fiveson. I'm your host. I'm very excited to be an official podcast for the Psychedelic Science 2023 convention to be held in Denver from June 18th through the 24th. On this podcast, we're joined by Aaron Orsini, an autistic author and online community organizer with a decade of experience exploring the potential use of psychedelic medicines in navigating autism and other neurodivergent conditions. Aaron is also the author of Autism on Acid, How LSD Helped Me Understand, Navigate, Alter, and Appreciate My Autistic Perceptions. I'd like you to welcome Mr. Aaron Orsini. Welcome to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast, Aaron Orsini. I am so glad to have you here. You are an author, an online community organizer, and you've been involved in this area for quite some time. Welcome. I, 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 I'm really, I'm digging it that we're finally here and we're talking, man. Yeah, for sure, Keith. It's great to be here. It's, it's a great time meeting you last year at uh, one of the conferences last year. And yeah, I'm really excited for our conversation and to talk about my uh, area of focus in, in great depth if we have the time. Yeah, now you're now you're really uh, very much involved in exploring the potential use of psychedelic medicines in navigating autism and other neurodivergent conditions. And I know that you're an author. Uh, you have a wonderful book called Autism on Acid: How LSD Helped Me Understand, Navigate, Alter, and Appreciate My Autistic Perceptions. Wow. Well, you know. Tell me a little bit more. Tell me a little bit more about what inspired you to explore psychedelics as a potential treatment for autism. Yeah. So, you know, throughout this podcast, I'll be doing a great deal of like language specificity and adjustments and things like this. And mm -hmm. I think the first thing that's really important to get off uh, right off the bat is that we're addressing the challenges that are often co-occurring within autistic individuals. Um, some individuals within this population might be triggered by the notion of treating something that certain individuals might associate with as a sort of identifying label. And that's it's no, no hard feelings, nothing like this. It's just more of like a, a clarification point that some of us within this broader neurodivergency movement see uh, conditions such as autism as like a difference, a, you know, an alternate uh, mode of cognition. And so what we're really doing is kind of modulating some of the neurological functions in such a way that it becomes a bit more, um, you know, flexible uh, for us in certain contexts, because in invariably, again, following some of these neurodiversity principles, mm -hmm. uh, people who might be autistic are mostly disabled in context, they can thrive in certain environments, and then they can be challenged in other environments. And so for those challenging environments or challenging contexts, psychedelics can do a great deal 
or enhancing uh, things like uh, connection to other individuals, also interoceptive processing, which is kind of an awareness of internal states, um, and just a general fluidity and ease of coming into harmony with their environments. Uh, autism in Greek means uh, the isolated self, the condition of isolation of the self. And psychedelics are, you know, whether you're talking about intactogens, things that help to enhance that inner touching or retrieval or empathogens to enhance empathy. There's a lot of obvious overlaps that become apparent as soon as you kind of start to dig into like beneath the label kind of uh, thing. So as far as what inspired me to your initial question, you know, I came into psychedelics uh, very happenstantially and my work was responsive to uh, the profound impact that they had upon me. Mm. So I didn't sit around with textbooks and think, hey, wouldn't it be great if we combine psychedelics and autism? Right. I've been reverse engineering what happened to me and what was repeatable and successful mm. for myself. And now I've heard from some 5,000 or more people who have written me their phenomenological reports or come to our support spaces. And so we're really just applying like mechanistic neuroscience to kind of come to a more foundational understanding of what's really happening from the perspective of the pharmacological action of psychedelics and simultaneously like the neurological underpinnings of the autistic brain. Uh, so in some sense, we already understand the effectiveness and routes for in protocols. Um, but on the further lens, we're trying to really get more precise with precision medicine over time. And that's where the more scientific research branch of this all comes into play. Right. So you, I mean, again, this was an organic growth. You had an experience. You said, wow, look at what happened. Look at what, look what happened from an interoception viewpoint. Look how I connected in not only with my environment, but with other people. And you said, ah, I think there's something here. And that really led you to further investigate and further trial or research, if you will. Is that right? Yeah, it, it was really just self-study. And I, I sat with these experiences for about five years. I was experimenting with different protocols, dosing schedules, primarily working with LSD. I've since worked with LS, uh, MDMA and psilocybin as well and found a great deal of benefit with those and as well with working with others um, from within this broader community and kind of hearing feedback from them. I mean, all of these tools are really assistive at the at the core. I mentioned the connection piece. That's quite obvious and fairly universal. I think what's really especially helpful is that uh, the autistic mind can be especially rigid in certain forms of thinking and this can this can predispose certain autistics to some of these sort of savant qualities that are sometimes stereotyped in media um, but that rigidity of thinking can also start to break down when you kind of necessitate flow state or intuition based navigations and so having that somatic awareness or that bottom-up processing as, as certain scientists might refer to it it gives a certain ease and uh, there's a lef less efforted way that the individual can start to interface with other individuals or with their own inner landscape because they were they're responding from a place of intuition rather than the sort of ruminatory intellectual like rational analytical mind mm -hmm. and that affords a certain energy savings that can be translated into joyful states or mm -hmm. relaxed mm -hmm. states calm states recharging mm -hmm. states uh, there's there's a term in autism known as burnout, and it's it's often spurred by the recruitment of areas of the mind uh, that are kind of compensatorily working uh, to compensate for other areas that might not be as well connected or connected differently in such a way that the patterns of processing are, are might be more taxing for situations that might come more readily and easily for other uh, quote unquote, like typically developing individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not familiar with that term burnout. 
And uh, as we've talked before, uh, I'm familiar in my family, there's autism. And certainly um, I'm, you know, always very interested in terms of not only that savant quality, as you say, in terms of the, just the ability to go ahead and see things differently, but also the um, opportunity to go ahead and look at breakthroughs. Tell me a little bit about your uh, breakthroughs or the breakthroughs you've seen. I know you've written this one book, Autism on Acid, but you've written some other books. And then you have a community as well. You say you've got folks where you've got over 4,000, 5,000 people that, I think you said 4,000 people that have uh, connected in with you. So tell me about some of the breakthroughs and, and some of the perspectives as we look at burnout and or the opportunity to rewire, reframe, reconnect with areas that, you know, might be might be new or might be hopefully new. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, there's a lot of different competing underlying uh, theories for the neural correlates of autism and, and what's contributing to some of these unique presentations. Uh, some of those uh, revolve around the notion that there might be a, um, a lesser degree of dendritic pruning within the autistic mind. So in other words, these tree branches that extend off of our uh, neurons are, are not being pruned as much and are not creating as much of like an efficient processing uh, can kind of make our minds a bit for lack of you know scientific term like stickier in terms of our mem memory retention or the conditioning maps might be especially rigid and so like the neurogenesis the ability to go ahead and uh, from the viewpoint of dendrites be able to go ahead and expand and re uh, interconnect is that do I have that right? Well, so now we're talking about kind of there's <laughs> there's a lot else. of layers, right? So so the neurogenesis has more to do with like, you know, like growth or regrowth. Some people find this utile in like, you know, traumatic brain injuries, other sorts of things. Um, that's not necessarily what I view as like the primary action point here. Mm -hmm. It's more just speaking to the underlying notion of like that there is a sort of like hypersynaptic connectivity, uh, as most especially in local regions that's been showed on fMRI imaging with um with autistic neurology. So essentially what psychedelics can do is, uh, even though we think of them as mind expanding compounds, a lot of drugs, specifically LSD, can also downregulate certain local regions while at the same time uh, increasing what's known as global uh, connectivity between regions. So that cross communication, that sort of famous graphic from Beckley mm -hmm. that had, you know, the multiple lines connecting across the outer edges of the circle, right. uh, that that sort of um, sort of uh, again neural correlate, so to speak. It's it's I'm I'm kind of parsing terms here a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but that sort of patterning is almost inverted in certain autistic neurology to where certain local regions are very strong and very hyperactive, um, including the default mode network has been shown to be uh, in certain autistics. Again, we have to always asterisk it because we're such a heterogeneous group, mm -hmm. um, but certain autistics might have especially uh, high activity in that default mode network. And it might be also aberrant, which is a term for locked within a narrow range at like a certain frequency of oscillation. Mm -hmm. So that ability to drop out of rumination and into intuition might be more especially difficult for these individuals. So if we're combining this sort of like sticky mind and the sort of like stuck in that conditioning uh, in tandem uh, with this sort of like hyper ruminatory uh, kind of hyper inner monologued experience of the individual, and if we're pushing that into the social sphere, we can then kind of like lose some of the triggers of like conditioned fear response, things mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, we this is all just being spun out of anecdotes with the exception of the MAPS uh, 2016 study uh, that they completed validating that social anxiety could be alleviated. 
um, you know, within that study, the the uh, group that received MDMA in combination with psychotherapy vastly outperformed uh, the placebo control group, and a lot of you know the evidence point towards points towards uh, aspects of self acceptance, aspects of feeling calm, feeling safe in order to reach self acceptance, in order to feel safe enough to feel. Period in those situations. Um, because uh, similarly, if you look across the mental health board, we are, you know, at something around 8x more likely to uh, have CPTSD or PTSD within this population. Mm-hmm. Our life expectancy is 55 years old as autistic individuals. Mm-hmm. 80% of us are under unemployed or underemployed. Mm-hmm. So all of these very subtle challenges we face translate into uh, social hazards, social difficulties, and like physical and mental uh, issues of well-being. Uh, so when I speak in such a wide and uh, sort of free associating way of mapping all of this, it's because it necessitates a walking around of a great deal of territory in order to really kind of make this abstract internal landscape become more relatable, understandable, perceivable. Because mm-hmm. um, there's so many moving parts mm-hmm. and uh, so many layers. Well, you know, it sounds uh, we've been talking a lot of what we've been talking about certainly talks about the um, the neuroplasticity of the brain and certainly the ability to go ahead and rewire individuals. I'm, I'm just wondering from your point, from your point of view, if we can break it down a little bit more, in what ways do you think psychedelics could be beneficial for those who are on the autism spectrum? If they're look, if they've got, you know, certain rigid behaviors, as you point out, and certain ways of doing things, can you break that down in terms of just, you know, simple, you know, modification or simple ways sure. of, you know, moving back into family or moving back into society. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I'll be transparent in stating like I'm a self-taught neuropsychopharmacologist. So all of these mechanistic and neural correlate notions I'm expressing, uh, you know, I, I recognize my limitations in those regards. What I can speak fairly authoritatively to is the research that I'm directly on as a co-author with University College London, where we got um, nearly 300 participants who completed a 45 minute survey. We gave them the mystical experience questionnaire, the challenging experience questionnaire and the autistic quotient exam, uh, which we then used to kind of deduce uh, the perceived and self-reported changes that they had before and after uh, their most significant psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, after exclusions, we trimmed it down to really just talking about uh, LSD, uh, DMT, and psilocybin specifically, uh, with LSD and psilocybin having the majority of responses. So when I'm speaking about, quote, psychedelics, I'm not necessarily in this instance talking about ketamine or anything really for the sake of simplicity, let's just focus just on LSD and psilocybin since they're fairly similar in terms of uh, subjective reporting. Um, those individuals, uh, when we you know came through and came uh, measured uh, their self-reportings of change, uh, some of the most significant changes that were reported um, were increases in uh, feelings of connection um, and uh, decreases in social anxiety, um, increases in psychological flexibility, increases in self-acceptance, increases in uh, you know affinity for family members, uh, wanting to be around others. Uh, increases in a metric that's known as assimilation, which is essentially boiled down to like how comfortable does someone feel within their own space and within the spaces of others. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, I've been hearing these same things for, you know, years now. And to see that also come through in the data set is really reassuring because that's 
that's the foundational data that we need in order to validate the next phase, which is the clinical applications of saying, hey, people have self-reported this and in large numbers, uh, can we recreate this when we're observing and controlling for the dose and the dose amount and the dosing mm -hmm. schedule and other factors? And so that's, that's essentially the next phase of progression. Um, and at the further perspective of it all, um, if you took away the fact that we gave them this autism quotient exam and you took that same data and you saw the types of mental health challenges that they were addressing, it's no different than a general human population survey. We're, we're benefiting from a lot of the same mental health benefits that psychedelics afford any human of any neurology. Um, we, we're just that much more likely to start at a lower baseline for certain things. We're more likely to be more depressed, more suicidal, more addicted to certain things, all sorts of factors. Um, we just we start further back uh, behind like the mental health eight ball, so to speak. And so the the changes and the reported changes are just kind of set up to be uh, dramatic for some of these individuals, especially when we're dealing with certain challenges that you can't necessarily penetrate within a therapeutic container if you don't have an individual that's willing to trust another person. Mm -hmm. um, so when you have substances that can catalyze trust and bonding and safety, uh, that's the doorway through which actual progress can be made in otherwise treatment-resistant depression cases, et cetera, et cetera. Now that's that's very interesting. So the University of College, uh, University College of London study uh, that you've done. Um, you know, I'm just interested. As uh, can we unpack that a little bit more in terms of really talking about some of the challenges in researching psychedelics and autism? Uh, is it really just getting the population or? What have been some of the challenges from from doing the research? Uh, because this is the first of its kind research that I've heard of, and I'm just wondering uh, your your perspective around that. You know, uh, it's going to be an uninteresting answer, but the primary answer, at least when it comes to uh, academic research, and most certainly in like the for-profit biotech uh, spaces, it's that this population is not as uh, significant as those who are more broadly depressed or traumatized. Mm -hmm. We're just a smaller group. Uh, if you were to take into the account that autistics are one in 45 people in the United States uh, or worldwide, they're considered to be anywhere from one to two people out of 100. Uh, we're dealing with, you know, a global population that therefore dips into something like 80 million versus however many people are depressed, however many people, etc. So the main challenge for a lot of this stuff is just kind of justifying, uh, you know, the, the funding, even at the academic level. Um, but secondarily, you know, the other challenge is just there's an absence of having a lot of uh, people who thoroughly understand this within the academic research world. Uh, it tends to be, especially in the sort of neurodiversity movement lens, mm -hmm. that uh, the targets that are being researched for autism are often sometimes uh, either unhelpful and sometimes outright harmful to autistic populations. Things like trying to eliminate the condition from the gene pool or things like this for mm -hmm. people that are like, um, it wasn't that long ago that we were facing literal genetic uh, eugenics mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. some decades ago. And so mm -hmm. the whispers of like, let's genetically eliminate this become quite scary mm -hmm. for some of us. Um, and so my emphasis with this research and all my future research is on improving the quality of life for these individuals, mm -hmm. the reassignment of self-agency for these individuals, mm -hmm. uh, getting, you know, metrics and scores that translate to, you know, we're in like a theoretical design that I, that I can't talk about in great depth right now. Mm -hmm. But the metrics we're trying to get are much more simple uh, as opposed to, I. it's just, it's very triggering for individuals to hear something like, 
will psychedelics make you less autistic? It's incredibly triggering for people because the whole world is set up to be a pressured system to make us less ourselves. Mm. Um, and mm -hmm. so the notion that these, these substances are going to make us less autistic is very upsetting. And it's not that that is the case. It is more so that aspects of these quotient exams, because we're basically diagnosed by questionnaires, uh, means that if we see a reduction in quote unquote symptoms, or as I would call them trait presentations, we're essentially shifting like a personality type. We're shifting a learning processing mode type. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that if I take a focusing medicine for my ADHD symptoms and I become more able to, you know, initiate tasks and stay focused on tasks, um, you know, we don't have that same connotation in the ADHD world. People aren't like really like proudly ADHD, although that is somewhat the case right. sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but we're seeing still nonetheless an improvement in the overall quality of one's experience by virtue of if I can get my work done, I can have a better quality of life because the economy will well better sustain me. Um, and similarly, if I can feel more comfortable in social situations, I can more navigate those not just for the inherent joy of socializing, but also for my economic and academic uh, success. Right. Um, if you right. don't have a network of human beings, finding work, sustaining work and navigating social hierarchies and workplace politics is very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so oftentimes most of us are relegated to productivity based jobs. And that's where some of the cliches come in. Like I still fulfill that. I, I make a living off of like web design still while I do this research because mm -hmm. it's productivity based. It, it has an interface. It has clear signaling. Mm -hmm. I still can navigate the relational dynamics, but mm -hmm. I'm always going to be predisposed to having a different kind of like information organizing structure in my mind, which if I lean into that edge, I'll thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the past, I fixated on my on my challenge and, and on my quote unquote deficits mm. that the doctors told me that I have. I love, you know, let's celebrate our differences and let's uh, expand our minds and our consciousness and our interrelatedness. Uh, given the differences, let's celebrate that. And I think what you're saying here is, you know, and I used the term neurogenesis before, which is really to just go ahead and and, and have new growth. To be able to go ahead and leverage what you've got and to be able to go ahead and make it new interconnections that perhaps weren't made before um you know you also uh, uh use the term you know the one to two percent i mean you know a lot of the research and a lot of the focus has been on trauma it's been on helping individuals overcome their traumas but here you're really talking about it seems like you're talking about something new in terms of really helping the individual to acclimate towards new behaviors to acclimate towards new ways of socializing not only themselves but interconnecting with others yeah and and a couple of things i want to say on this and someone from our group said something beautiful the other day they said that they had complex post-traumatic stress disorder but they preferred to be labeled as having complex post-stress or complex post-traumatic stress uh, injuries uh, that mm. they are re they're neurologically rehabilitating themselves from, mm. um, so mm. such that like they themselves, the individual, are not disorderly so much as they are overcoming those challenges. That's specific to the PTSD piece. Mm -hmm. Within the autism world, most often we refer to ourselves just simply as autistic and drop the disorder component, uh, kind of recognizing that social model. But as we look forward and ahead, the true novelty to me as well is that, again, 
a lot of this is inseparable from the economics of how research and funding works and it's a lot easier to uh, fund and execute a study that is an intervention based study not one that's like a long-term rehabilitation process mm -hmm. and that's more realistic to what i see i mean i'm on year seven of fairly routine use of uh you know annual mdma to do a really deep dive check-in with myself in tandem with uh fairly regular microdosing that helps me kind of tap into that contact lens space where I can be balancing my heart and mind more readily mm -hmm. um, and have the energy and have the extra dopamine of LSD to be able to be task oriented and focused and flow state. Like I'm not talking about, you know, a lightning strike saving of someone's existence. I'm talking about equipping them with the ability to have a, a more malleable uh, neurological patterning such that they can, you know, dose in a contextually relevant way when they need to. In the same way that, you know, uh, people ask me all the time, like, hey, like, are you more this or that because you've taken LSD? And my response is like, well, I've been able to be more certain ways when within the acute drug window and near to it, um, but it's not my goal to remain in that state either. I wouldn't want to live in a permanent coffee state and I wouldn't want to learn, like live in a permanent <laughs> like sleep medicine state, but having the option to be able to pull those tools and implement them in context is wonderful and makes my life profoundly more productive, wonderful, joyous. I can more fully enjoy a moment. I can more fully accomplish a task when I need to and and really getting to know how does my body work in in synchronicity with all these different medications or foods or sleep cycles or anything mm -hmm. like it's all a symbiotic dance and like the overemphasis on any one molecule or any one tool is going to throw someone just onto another further off path from more of a harmonious and sustainable one. Mm. So really living a more integrated life using pharmacology as one of the tools, but also it's a, it's a broader spectrum, hate to use that word here, but within the context of really looking at individuals that might be on the spectrum or using the analogy of being in a house and only living in one room, this really gives you access to the whole house, to all the rooms, and to be able to go ahead and look out the window and see a different world that you might not have looked at before just by simply opening up the door, using the tool, the doorknob to go ahead and open up that door and to be able to have a look for a period of time but then if you want to go back into you know your your introception and you want to go ahead and you know be where you are you also have that as an option yeah because again it's i identify like my sober state as just yet another altered state from the other altered states um i've used the metaphor at times that uh, these compounds or anything like literally anything that's going to alter our consciousness which is mm -hmm. just about anything breathing differently sleeping differently going and finding the sunlight any of these things become different seats in this amphitheater of awareness and you know again staying fixated and stuck in one seat is going to start to like limit your perspective on the show and so mm -hmm. being able to alternate those seats is wonderful but if you have what feels like a lack of control over your seat placement and a lack mm. of context for how you arrived at that seat. That's mm. when you get into some of these others, like, you know, worrisome kind of mental states of, you know, panic or, or things like this. But, you know, in a majoritative sense, most of us are diagnosed in our earlier years when we're trying to exist within one specific structure. And that's most primarily public schooling. 
Uh, and public schooling has a very specific set of expectations and demands that in my adult life, I don't live a life that in any way resembles a bell schedule or a nine to five. I ride the wave of like my voracious appetite of whatever I directly want to be working on. And I find a way to circle back to like 694 tasks in a day and keep nudging them forward without feeling the shame that I felt for all my public school and conventional work days, which is you can't stay focused long enough, take a stimulant. And so now I'm like, well, no, I, I, I can stay very focused on a passion. I can be very deeply involved in that when I have a reason and a motivation. And, and so it's also like kind of a reclaiming of the fact that different neurologies necessitate different approaches, different intelligences require like different accommodations and neurodiversity academies do this exceptionally well. They allow kids as early as 13, 14 to commit early to something that they absolutely love and those kids don't even realize that they're at school they're like oh my god i get to go and build buildings all day i love buildings like i go to the building building place and that's all they do and they become like masters of industry before they're 18. meanwhile like i graduated college at 22 as a generalist that still needed training on stuff like so it's like this kind of crazy paradigm but i i get on a soapbox about that um but yeah that's part of the broader picture is like I'm constantly dealing with parents who are simultaneously challenged, not by the inherent predisposition of their uh, child or their adult child, but by the expectations that are being placed on them by the public school administrators and all these things where they can't meaningfully place them into one of these more apprenticeship based education environments. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, how do I domesticate my child that doesn't want to be domesticated and, mm -hmm. and it has this ability and we can't tap into it because mm -hmm. they're necessitated to do all these different things. Right. Right, so. right, right. Well, you know, you bringing up something is one of my questions I was going to ask is, you know, uh, in terms of dealing with parents and uh, really understanding, uh, you know, people who are considering experimenting with psychedelics as a treatment for their own or for their child's autism, what kind of advice would you give them? What would you say to them in terms of someone who's considering I mean, at this juncture, just purely for the sake of, you know, my own integrity and the integrity of this broader organization, I can only really speak to consensual adult use of these compounds. And I say this only because as of now, we have a limited data set as far as the safety and efficacy that is right. viable within that population. It's not to say that there is, aren't paths. Like if MAPS gets FDA approval, they're necessitated to do an adolescent study with MDMA. That's part of the approvals process. Um, similarly, ketamine has been approved down to age five because it's used as a general anesthetic and there's mm -hmm. been uh, efficacy shown for teenagers for suicide intervention with ketamine. So it's not to say that there aren't methods, it's just that, like with my own heart, I cannot advise anyone to go down those paths. What I can mm -hmm. speak to is the experience of parents who are already taking steps with things like, you know, cannabis oil for things that are otherwise uh, being failed by other conventional medications. And if we think about some of the medicines that are being approved and administered within those age ranges, there's a lot of psychotropic medicines mm -hmm. that are far more harmful to the livers, kidneys, on and on and on. Uh, than something that's much more benign like psilocybin um, and so, you know, which is only legal now in Oregon and Colorado, right? And only really decriminalized and, and only still decriminalized, right? yeah. because any parent listening that's even considering it be aware that anyone even considering such a thing would be taken away have their children taken away from dcfs for the administration right. of a schedule one compound right um so it's just like you know it's 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 definitely something that will be explored in time mm -hmm. um and it's definitely something that i do get unsolicited reports mm -hmm. all the time about 
Um, but for the sake of the safety and really just to honor the, the, the adolescents or children and, and the, the essential nature of like participation and consent in those exchanges, like I just have to really speak from a place of, you know, when I'm speaking with parents or supporting parents, I'm supporting them with helping their adult uh, child to make decisions about uh, their own kind of mental health and, and simultaneously I'm supporting parents who are also exploring psychedelics because there's a lot of healing that needs to happen within whole families that are right. also caught up in the same systemic kind of dilemma. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's yeah, a really tricky yeah. situation. It's a big, and it's a challenge. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, you're talking about, you're talking about, we, we talk about the good things and you talk about, you know, some of the concerns or some of the risks, certainly the legal risk. I'm wondering, you know, from the viewpoint of the research that you've done with the University College of London, whether or not you've seen some, you know, specific risks uh, when, uh, you know, using psychedelics for treating autism that people should be aware of. Definitely. And, and we speak about this within our course as well. And, and, you know, part of the notion of doing these broad based discovery surveys is to really illuminate that. That's why we included the challenging experience questionnaire on there. Um, you know, some of the most basic ones being that autistics, just like any other human that's going to receive psychedelics, should get a medical screener, should be taken into account as to whether or not they have a first degree relative that might be prone to schizophrenia or psychosis states. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it doesn't like ha being autistic doesn't necessarily elevate that, but there are elevated rates of, uh, you know, variances of all sorts within autistic neurologies. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, medically screening is still essential whether it's in Oregon under the facilitation model or what or whatever it may be. Um, some of the more nuanced and unexpected challenges uh, that I often hear from individuals is a sort of post-session longing um, because they feel that their kind of nervous systems are, are regulated uh, with these medicines. And because of prohibition and the limited access, uh, oftentimes either, you know, they can they can be themselves for one ten thousand dollar mdma session in their lifetime and then suddenly they're like i can't go back there um i wish i could go back there to where like my nervous system was fully regulated and i could really know exactly how i felt during those moments um you know same uh, that was me in my early days with lsd as well i was trying to stay in that kind of uh deeply interconnected state and I, I found ways to stay in there with rest periods in between and to not tax my system and to have something of a regimen because um, again too much of anything is is, is gonna cause uh, you know an, an upsetting of a system but I do see that often as well people will be like wow like I felt really comfortable with myself and all the people I was with and I don't have continued access to that feeling because I don't have continued access to this medicine mm, uh, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 I uh, I was speaking with uh, um, uh, uh, someone earlier and we were talking about the whole idea of doing the preparation work, the dosing, and then the integration. And you're reminding me of the sort of the hero's journey, right? The return, uh, having the return back to the, the the regular ordinary world, if you will, and how important integration is and how important it is to not only normalize the experience, but to integrate it or to activate what might be coming up for individuals. So I'm just wondering from the work that you're doing and the research that you're doing, whether or not 
your how your how the model works and are you doing you know from the preparation dosing and integration what does that look like and what does it look like from an overall activation i know you talked about microdosing as a as a pathway towards quote unquote normalization if you will uh towards just sort of the window of tolerance so i'm just like can you give me some perspective on that is it the same is it any different you know what does it look like no i mean at its core we're humans using psychedelics and and there's a million ways to use the fire you can you can do a controlled burn of everything in your mental landscape and build back up you can you know light a candle to keep you warm overnight whatever it is um and i given the timeliness of the, all of this i really want to speak about the special opportunities that we now have in colorado which is it is now still federally illegal but it is protected at the state level and many people are pushing boundaries with gifting microdoses in tandem with education here in colorado and what that affords us is to uh still hold sacred and special the access and uh, you know uh, inter relational building with these medicines but to reduce that scarcity such that that urgency can also be reduced as well because again when we talk about these harms or these potential you know watch out for this or watch out for that it's really just translated to watch out for prohibition mm. because like people can live in full retreat here we live in retreat here we have like gifting gatherings all the time mm -hmm. people are frequently in the same way we've become casually and totally tolerant of someone having a morning coffee before they do their work mm -hmm. we have morning microdoses before we do our work because it mm -hmm. makes us more heart-centered more patient more compassionate with our listening throughout mm -hmm. the day and that's just simply normalized and that's also protected at the state level mm. so as we start to like kind of normalize those models we reduce these harms of having to go into this total utopian existence and then have to return to this dystopia from whence you came mm. so we're bringing the retreat to the city we're living retreat in our lives mm. every moment mm. and we're normalizing that and even us as advocates are having a hard time wrapping our head around the fact that that's possible now mm. even me i feel like i'm waiting for like like this like electric fence to buzz me for, for just the like knock on the stuff. door you know it's like Hello? we went to like we went to we went to a gathering and we gathered there was about 45 minutes of education about you know here's how here's how these microdoses work here's things to be aware of here's a liability waiver here's an informed consent form you're receiving this as an offering we are not providing any medical service you're here for education here is your gift and then we sat there and we capsuled microdoses together and we took them away along with everyone's contact information so that we could check up on each other the next week and we've been in contact ever since and people are already making progress mm. and i'm pretty sure that that cost all of us a collective couple of fives of dollars mm -hmm. <laughs> like to get together at this sure. like rented space that we got together in and i'm pretty sure that the the other piece of it that i find to be almost hilarious is like i want to validate this through open study is like if we did a study that cross compared you know the effectiveness of psilocybin group therapy mm -hmm. in a clinical context as compared to community care model some of the questionnaires would become almost absurd because it would be like hey this group that met for six weeks straight and stayed in contact did those people feel more connected to each other like did they feel like they were more like you know did they feel like they were more supported like normalized yeah 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 like yes the medicine catalyzes it but it, it also like really forms like the glue that continues this sort of bonding uh with other individuals who then feel comfortable opening up with one another staying connected and holding each other in a space of care 
Like I'm, I'm fairly certain you could recreate some of the same outcomes that you get in the group therapy models with community care models at like one one thousandth of the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went to a farmer's market the other day and purchased a uh, all-in-one grow bag with a psilocybin cubensis spore uh, syringe and was able to just like acquire those because it's fully legal to do. Mm-hmm. If I was to combine those, I've broken the law, which I will not combine those, but you can buy those at farmer's markets now mm-hmm. here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can cultivate with state protections here in Colorado. So when we talk about like, you know, what are the strategies for integration Mm. to live a life of integration is the strategy to live a life of ceremony and ritual and community care is integration is preparation on repeat until it's unlabeled and it's just everywhere because that's how we live our lives is Mm. caring deeply for one another in community rather than just like ignoring like our neighbors like that i've been accustomed to throughout most of my life amen and hallelujah past the sacrament oh my goodness wow how beautiful that is that's really uh, absolutely wonderful and you're living in colorado now right yeah we're in denver we're at ground zero i'm living here I'm at uh, Plant Magic Cafe, and we're going to be doing a lot of similar kind of offerings throughout the MAPS conference. If people want to drop through in the morning time, see the see what really is possible uh, under like the new uh, you know allowances and just what's possible when you just have a full kind of culture that's seeded from this mm-hmm. place of, hey, I'm here to genuinely show up for the betterment of those around me. Um, I'm, I'm going beyond self-interest and really making it about like collective well-being and social wellness. Um, you know, we all have our biases. I'm sure this like utopian thing I'm speaking of sounds wonderful. I'm sure there's lots of pitfalls that lie ahead. Um, but there's people willing to show up and people that feel that there's a lot of things that haven't been working in the way that these systems have been organized over time and that there's opportunity here because I can, you know, I, I'm really hammering on this Colorado point because I, I, I felt after I went to that microdosing workshop, I felt all this like anger towards this whatever imagined construct of a system Mm -hmm. i like felt all that anger go away and i was like you know what i don't need to convince anyone of a thing i can just be showing up and helping people i can be showing up and doing this work like there's no more permission needed we can just do it and do it in a way that is like done at the speed of trust and safety and we can just do it the whole going blue in the face of trying to explain why this is useful is over we're just exposing people to the utility and then they're like oh I went to this workshop and I could probably run one of these workshops because we're open sourcing the documents for the workshop or open sourcing the lecture for the workshop because there is much more to be gained than just some like infinitely scalable economic boom from psychedelics. There is a flood of social well-being that could be enacted as soon as we lower the barriers to entry for everyone and anyone uh, to be able to access the tools. Healthcare is absurdly expensive, and for a couple of dollars, um, people can access a couple of weeks of psilocybin that will that will just engender so much benefit in their lives, and that's sustainable and repeatable. And if they're willing to go through the learning curve of cultivation, they have such a reliable pharmacy for themselves and their friends ongoing without any concern. Um, and it's just it's just that. Beautiful. Now, uh, I know you're going to be at the uh, Psychedelic Science Convention uh, in Denver, uh, and you've got uh, you're an exhibitor over there as well, right, uh, Aaron? Yeah, yeah, and, that's uh, correct. And what are you going to be doing at that uh, at your uh, exhibit at your booth there? 
Yeah, so at our booth, we'll have other members of the AutisticPsychedelic.com community. So that's our global organization that has now become more in-person. We have in-person meetups now in Denver. Uh, we also have people that have formed kind of like satellite groups all around the world from Australia to, you know, we have people joining our meetings from Saudi Arabia, Kenya, mm -hmm. wherever. So we have some of them flying out. We're actually going on our own retreat uh, during this uh, same month of June. We've rented a like an Airbnb for many of us to get together to celebrate all the progress we've made and to teach each other practical skills. But during the actual event, we'll have a booth and all of that knowledge that we have distilled, we've distilled it down into the books that we'll have for sale. Also, we'll have signups for our future online class offerings that we'll have for sale. Uh, and then we'll you have a workshop. You have this workshop happening at the uh, Plant Magic Cafe. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, on the 20th of June, we have a workshop. It's going to be uh, in person upstairs, about 40 seats available. And I'm just condensing the eight hour intensive into a five hour intensive and mm. providing workbooks, uh, additional follow up materials, basically just assuming that most people are coming with some psychedelic awareness to this mm -hmm. event. I kind of teach the training typically as like, maybe you're an autism professional learning about psychedelics or vice versa. This one I'm more orienting with more of an emphasis on the unique aspects of the autism focused uh, elements of the class, kind of assuming that everyone's kind of gotten the overview of psychedelic substance profiles, things like that. Um, but yeah, we'll be teaching that here. It'll also just be a networking and socializing opportunity. And anyone who graduates from that class or any of our future online offerings also gets pushed into our alumni network which now has about 400 or so individuals, many of wow. whom identify as autistic or neurodivergent in some way, who also hold certificates in therapy or other occupational therapy, mental health fields, mm -hmm. or even lineage practitioners um, as well, who just want to be able to better accommodate the unique needs of this population. Because, you know, it's I'm past the point now. I, I still spend time educating people on what mm -hmm. this is and how this is, but I've seen too many people directly in front of me like go through these changes to be like in need of any urgency of convincing anybody of anything. Mm -hmm. I'm really just here to let people know, hey, this is what we're doing. It's mm -hmm. working. Do you want to help us? Do you want to receive help from us? Because it works. And it works because of the backbone of community and the backbone of like genuine care from the collective. Like mm -hmm every sunday we also have an online zoom meeting and we also it's a peer support meeting but more and more i'm calling it a mutual aid meeting because when you have a room that's like 100 people that are in the zoom and you have even just a minute to speak and you say hey i'm going through my diagnosis and i'm in the state of california and i don't know how to really navigate that anyone have any advice we have all those people in the zoom and all of the thousands of people in our discord that can then patch that person straight to a lived experience and a direct guidance of how they've navigated that mm. it's going to be profoundly better than a lot of the mental health professionals that only really had those couple of chapters or semesters on some of those challenges most of which are not existing in the temporality of right here and now given the current constraints of the current system and all these other barriers so we have people exchanging wisdom about what works for them and that works really well too uh, for our community as well That's beautiful well you know aaron you're you're very kind you're uh really a a, a sweet individual uh and uh you know, I uh, really appreciate your uh, articulate manner and your ability to go ahead and really thread the needle uh, on this uh, subject because it's very complex and uh, it also in and of itself holds some, you know, stigma to it that holds some sort of sense of, you know, foreboding, like somehow you can't do anything about it. But you've really managed to go ahead and pierce that 
you know, with the needle of intelligence, with the needle of experience here with psychedelics. And I think it's just uh, absolutely wonderful, wonderful, and people have a lot to learn and a lot to, I wouldn't say learn as much as to uh, absorb, uh, to grow from, uh, and, uh, you know, just with the seeds and the spores that uh, you're, uh, you're spreading here. So uh, thank you so much for all of this. You know, no, really- I deeply, deeply appreciate it, you know, and, and, and more than just learning about, you know, the autistic experience, I think it just speaks to the importance of learning about any other perspective that might be foreign because it simultaneously informs, oh, I have a particular way of seeing, I have a particular bias, I have a particular strength or weakness. Mm-hmm. And coming into that brings us all closer to harmony to really recognizing those different strengths and weaknesses. So I, I appreciate you giving me this platform. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the MAPS event. And, and yeah, I just thank you so much for your time as well, Keith. Thank yeah, you so gonna, much. It's, it's gonna be great, it's gonna be wonderful. How do, how do people uh, get a hold of you Aaron Orsini, how do they get a hold of you? How do they find you? How do they get some of your work and, uh, you know, uh, really find out more, maybe uh, reach out to you? Yeah, so I'm the most prolific in terms of content posting and generally accessible through my Instagram, which is just the handle of autism on acid. Uh, so you can find me through Instagram. Uh, you can also email Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at autisticpsychedelic.com with any inquiries. And you can also just go to autisticpsychedelic.com and the contact us uh, will go straight to our shared inbox that I always monitor. So you can always contact us directly through the site or just Google psychedelics and autism and our work is like the 50 of the top 60 results on Google anyhow. So you can find us very easily uh, just by searching us out there. Excellent. Excellent. Aaron, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to seeing you at the Psychedelic Science 2023 convention in Denver from the 18th through the 24th. And if you're there, uh, listener, uh, please look up Aaron at his booth and also uh, look uh, forward to uh, maybe even attending his workshop on Tuesday, June the 20th and uh, check it out. It's going to be great. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, thank you so much, Keith. Thank you for listening to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We have other exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks, so stay tuned. For more mindfulness tips and tricks, visit our website at workmindfulness.com. Thanks again for being a part of the Mindfulness Experience. This is Keith Fiveson.